Okay, we are in the book of Micah. We've been working our way through the little book of Micah, and one of the minor prophets. He said that he was one of the good writers. He's got a lot to say to straighten out the children of Israel. And we come this night to chapter 6, which I think is uh, just about the best part of the book of Micah. And I'm glad to be here. Uh, this is a good passage that we're going to look at. Once again, it's uh, something we want to think about and see if we can wrap our mind around it. He's not easy to read, and I've told you that. Not easy to read, but it's worth the effort, particularly here when we come to chapter 6. And so uh, we looked last week at chapter 5 as he's looking on the mountain peaks of prophecy, looks ahead to see Christ coming and what Christ will do. And he shows us a lot of things that looking back we can see are true. Now we come to chapter 6, a little bit different point of view. Here we go. Chapter 6, Micah, verse 1. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains. Let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. And so, uh, we have here, in, to start out the chapter and something is very loud. And it's a controversy. God's got a controversy. God's got an argument. God's got something he wants to talk about. And I like the idea that he's shouting through the mountains. And he's shaking the foundations of the earth with his voice. And we have seen other passages when Isaiah says when he heard God speak, he said... The foundations of heaven shook. And you can figure that heaven is pretty well founded. All right. <laughs> this old place is pretty well founded. There's a huge, huge, huge boulder right in front of the church out there under the road. And that's why there's a hill here because underneath it there's a giant boulder. Nice to know we're on a rock. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the. Uh, uh, foundations shake when God's talking. So God's to saying something pretty loud. He wants to make sure you hear it. And it's a controversy. Uh, and so that's an important thing. Why so loud? Why is God so loud? Because he's about to tell us something very important. And we're coming up. And he says, oh, get your attention. <laughs> Sometimes that's how you get people's attention. Speak up. Talk loud, all right? And sometimes when I'm talking, I hear a cell phone go off. And I can talk over a cell phone, all right, if I need to. <laughs> and uh, God's voice can shake the heavens and the earth and talks about time when he comes. He'll shake the heavens and everything will shake. And so he's got something to say. It's a controversy. Uh, he's got a problem with the people of Israel. And it's a very important thing that he wants to say, so he's going to say it quite loudly, and it's us. We need an answer. We need an answer. Something we need to know, and God's going to tell us what it is we need to know. He's going to try to get our attention. So here we go, verse 3, and see what it is we need to know as we go down through. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. And so he says to the people, okay, the controversy is between us, between me, and between you, Israel, and between me. And, uh, and so... Um, Say what's on your mind. My question is, wherein have I wearied thee? What did I do to weary you? And the issue is that we're tired of God. We got tired of God. 
I think that is a real common issue. I think that's a very common issue among people of all times and all ages. Every once in a while, I get tired of God. Do we get tired of God? Well, I'd hope not. Good. <laughs> uh, but is there any time where you feel uninterested? Was it ever? Eh, just another lesson. Just another sermon. Um, do you ever think it takes too much time? Do you ever think it takes too much time? We have a Tuesday night Bible study. There's some places you can go where you can go just once a week, and there's the rest of the week nobody's there. Right? We're around. We're around a lot. Do you ever think it takes too much time? Um, do you ever think that God is too restricting, as if you're always checking yourself? You ever think God is too restricting? Or I think probably the largest issue uh, is this. Are you ungrateful? Are you ungrateful? Do you think about what God has done for us, and are you ungrateful? And you just, when's the last time you really sat down and said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I think being tired of God is something that happens. You know, I can tell when I look across an audience who's with me and, and who's reading their cell phone. <laughs> 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 I can tell, you know. I've seen people bring magazines to church and read them. I've seen people when I'm in the back of the Bible, they got open to the front. Funny how their Bible must be upside down, maybe. There's a time, I think, when people are bored with truth tired of God, they become uninterested, and they feel that it's pretty demanding. And so God says, uh, all right, tell me why you're bored. Tell me why you're not with me. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what I have done, he said, to weary you. They're tired of God. And that's the situation, the way God views it when he's looking down sometimes. God views it. And uh, <clears throat> he's about to deal, I think, most directly with the issue that is most common, which is being ungrateful, unthankful, unthankful. We can go a long time without really giving thanks without really focusing on what God gives us. And we need to really pay attention to that. There's so much that comes from his hand. When I look outside at this time of year, and some of the sights I see, I look across just an old field. It may not have colored leaves or anything, but I bet you it has 50 different shades of brown. It's amazing. Anything from gold to dark, dark black, and in all in between, all these beautiful colors all mixed together. And that's a hand of God that people never notice. And so uh, he wants to talk about their attitude towards him being in particular ungrateful, unthankful, I think. So here's where he will go. Verse 4. I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I set before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And so he says to the children of Israel, I brought you out of the house, that's of course Egypt he's talking about. In Egypt, they were slaves. 
And it's hard for you and me to wrap our heads around this. They were there for 400 years. You can't really wrap your head around 400 years. If you think that the United States, if we started in 1776, is 250 years old, okay? So the United States, from the history of the founding of our country, 1776 to now, 250 years, add another 150 to that, and that's how long they were in slavery in Egypt. That's a long, long, long time. Generation after generation after generation born into slavery. Born into slavery. And what did they do? It says they worked them, and he said they called it bitter bondage for 400 years. And he said, then I came along and said, we're going out tonight. I'm going to set you free. Man, oh man, what a thought. What a thought. We talk about the freedom we have in America. Can you imagine that? 400 years of slavery and God says, tonight we're going out. Talk about happy. Talk about thrilled. Talk about something you should never forget. Huh? You should never forget that if you're an Israelite. You should never forget after 400 years, he brought them out, and it says he brought them out high-handed. That is, he smashed Egypt into pieces. There were 10 plagues on Egypt. Egypt worshipped all sorts of things. They worshipped the river. They worshipped frogs. They worshipped flies. That was one of their favorites. They loved to worship flies. Uh, they worshipped those kind of things. And all of those things were part of the plague where this thing that you love to worship is, becomes disgusting. You know, they were covered with lice. They had flies in every house. They had frogs come out of the river and get into their homes until they stunk for miles around. They had darkness as they worshipped the sun. They had darkness so thick they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. As he one by one by one smashed the things that they believed in. And when he finished, he sent locusts through the land. And it says there wasn't one green thing left in Egypt. Nothing left. And then those people went free. Man, talk about (laughs) that. That's what you get, Egypt, when you defy God. And that's what the Pharaoh said. What did he say? Who is God that I should obey him? Found out, didn't he? So in that kind of wonderful freedom, it's something to be thankful for. He said, I took you out of the land of Egypt And then he said, I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses as the first leader, number one leader. And I think, in my opinion, that Moses was the greatest leader of humans ever. Ever. Of course, except for Jesus Christ, who's a different kind of leader. But Moses, he led... A nation of slaves that we think as high as a million and a half. A nation of slaves out of slavery into freedom. Turned them into a theocracy. That is a government centering on the worship of God. And brought them to the promised land. He didn't take them in but he sent them in to the promised land, and I think he's the most amazing leader in all of history. He was 40 years instructed in the land of Egypt, and they said he was educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. And when he was finished with that education, his mark was impatience. Then God educated him for 40 more years as a shepherd, and his mark was meekness. Then he was ready to serve. All right, so 40 years of the best education, one of the best educations the world has ever known, and then 40 years of God's education, and from the age of 80 to 120, he led them. 
And he was a magnificent leader in what he did. His brother Aaron was the great high priest of Israel as he taught people the value of worship. And he has a sister, Marion. Miriam, and Miriam is the great uh, praise leader. You know, we talk about people who are praise leaders today. She was it. She led the women in praising God. And so that's quite a trio for two brothers and a sister. Huh? And they come and lead these people out. Say, I couldn't have ever given you any better leaders than I gave you to take you out and teach you what you needed to know. So I didn't just send you out and say, see, hope you make it. I gave you the, some of the best leaders the world has ever known and led you out. And are you thankful for that? Verse 5, oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted when Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. And so as they're coming out of uh, Egypt, they go for a while in the wilderness, and then they're coming up towards the land of Moab. And if we take a look at it, it's kind of a, a pretty fascinating thing. It's in Numbers, chapter number 22. Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 22. story of what happened. He said, I want to remind you when you're ungrateful, when you're uninterested, I want to remind you of what happened. Numbers chapter 22, starting at verse 5. He sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth. They abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we might smite them, I might drive them out of the land, for I wot that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursed is cursed. So the king of Moab sends a message to Balaam, who's a prophet. And he said, come on down, and I'll pay you, I'll pay you well, as a matter of fact. Verse 7, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balak. So Balak is the king of Moab. He says, hey, look at all these Israelites coming up. I'm going to pay you to curse them. I want you to curse these people and let's get rid of them. Let's get them cursed so that they uh, don't bother me anymore. In verse 12, God said unto Balaam, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam's a prophet. He's, God said, no, you don't. Don't you dare curse those people. Well, they're going to pay me. Don't you curse those people. That's not what you're supposed to do. And so he tries once and he tries twice. And then he's going to try a third time. And in verse 26, we see what happens. The angel of the Lord went further, stood in a narrow place. There was no way to turn either to the right hand or the left. When the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam. Balaam's anger was kindled and he smote the ass with a staff. Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee? Thou hast smitten me these three times. Balaam said to the ass, Because thou mocked me. I would that there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass said to Balaam, Am I not thine ass upon whom thou hast written ever since I was thine to this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, No. <laughs> it's a great thing he's talking to a donkey. <laughs> Talk about a little bit strange, okay? He's riding his donkey. His donkey said, quit hitting me. And he says, I'll hit you. I'd kill you if I could. And the donkey says, well, why? Have I ever done anything like this before? No. <laughs> Chatting back and forth with the donkey. That's the craziest thing. Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, saw the angel of the Lord standing away with his sword drawn in his hand. He bowed his head, fell flat on his face. He's trying to go and curse the Israelites. And he got on his donkey and said, I'm just going to go get this done because they're going to pay me big money. And God fixed it so that the donkey's talking to him. 
And if you had a conversation with your donkey, there's something wrong with you. You got you're talking to the wrong, the wrong people. All right. And finally, you know, he's convinced. Man, I better not curse these people. Uh, in chapter 24, in verse 17, he finally says this. Chapter 24, Numbers, verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, destroy all the children of Seth. And so uh, old Balaam there, who was being paid to curse Israel, ends up saying, hey, I see somebody coming in the future, and I see a star rising out of Jacob. And that's how we got the story of the three wise men who followed the star at Christmas time. Because that, what he just said right there, they knew about that. And they went back trying to discover how come it was a new star. And old Balaam told them right there, star is going to rise up and it means a king is born. And so, uh, see, when they paid him, and he tried to curse Israel three times. He ended up blessing them instead. And God said, you're not going to curse my people. And so remember that being paid to curse even, he couldn't curse. And so God says, are you getting what I'm saying? I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I gave you the best leadership in the history of the world with Moses and his family. And then I, you came to a place where they wanted to curse you and they wanted to wipe you out, and I didn't allow it. Matter of fact, I had the donkey tell him off. All right? I stepped in and made sure that didn't happen. And then uh, he mentions here uh, back in, in Micah, verse 5, My people remember now what Balak, king of Baal, consulted, what Balaam, the son of Peor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal. All right, and so where they are, if we look in Joshua, and this is part of what he's trying to teach him too, in Joshua, in chapter 2, it said, Joshua, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came to a harlot's house named Rahab. And so they're on, they're, they have been led out of Egypt. They come out of the land of Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea into freedom. They go through the desert, and they're coming up. They come to the land of Moab, where the king wants to curse them. God doesn't allow it to happen. And then they're camped in this place called Shittim over here. And this is the Jordan River. And they send over uh, to spy out Jericho. And then they're going to cross the Jordan River and camp at Gilgal. So he says, I want you to remember the day that the last camp that you did in the wilderness. And then you crossed the Jordan River and you were in Gilgal. You went from what? The wilderness to what? The promised land. You went into the promised land. And there in the promised land, you found milk and honey flowing, uh, milk running out of the cow's udders, honey dripping off the rocks. It was a blessed land. And I gave you that land that I promised to Abraham hundreds of years before I gave you that land. So uh, are you grateful yet? Did you get it yet? Has it sunk into your mind yet? That your ungrateful attitude and your, oh, I'm tired of God attitude is really out of place. Look what I've done for you. I could have left you there. You could still be in slavery in Egypt. I took you out. I could have gave you poor leaders. I gave you the very best. They led you to the promised land. I protected you from curses along the way. And then one day you camped on one side of the river. And then do you remember how it happened? Remember when we studied it? The whole Jordan River dries up. 
And it says the wall, the water turned into walls. That doesn't happen with water, right? <laughs> turned into a big wall, and they came across, and they went through the Jordan River on dry land, and they camped in Gilgal there to possess the promised land. So he says, you're tired of me? I controversy with you. Why? How come you're ungrateful? What's wrong with you? Do you see why I have a controversy with you? You should be grateful for what I've done. And now, remember, Micah's talking um, probably a thousand years after they crossed the Jordan River. All right, it's been all the judges of Israel and then all the kings, and he's coming towards the end of the existence of the original Israel there, uh, where uh, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed shortly. And he's looking back, and he says, you remember all that? And are you still ungrateful? You still don't matter. You still think of God saying, oh. and I guess the thing about Micah, he seemed to have a real way of getting through to people. The way he said it got through to people. And I'm interested in that. <laughs> I want to know how to say things to get through to people. Uh, and Micah seemed to have the way, because look what happens in verse 6. Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? All right, so here, uh, he's, God's saying it's controversy. You're ungrateful. You don't care. And look what I've done for you. I brought you freedom and safety, brought you out of uh, uh, slavery into the promised land. I've done all these things for you. And what do you think about that? And finally, they said, you know, you're right. We haven't been paying attention. We've been a little lazy. We've been ungrateful. And so... Uh, if we're going to turn ourselves around, how do we do it? How do we do it? He says, wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And he says, okay, we get your message. We got through to us. We are convinced that we have been ungrateful people, that we need to do what's right. You got your message through. Good sermon there, Micah. Good sermon. And so uh, tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? So they start with some questions. Uh, Number one, should we bring a burnt offering? That's a special gift to God. And maybe they should be one year old calves. One year old calves. That would be prime stock. That'd be the best stock you had. All right, that one year a cow is ready to be a cow and uh, ready to begin its usefulness. He says, are we, would it be okay if we brought the best stock we had? So we're going to go out to the field and choose the very best animal and bring that. And will that do it? Will that set us right? That's the first question they make. Next one, verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ram or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Maybe if that, this first one doesn't work, Maybe we need to do great volumes, great volumes of sacrifices that will bring thousands of rams. How about that? Or we'll take the oil, which is olive oil, that we squeeze out and we'll bring rivers of it. Rivers and rivers of it, and we'll pour it as the holy oil on the altar to God, and we'll make a sacrifice. And God will see that we know that we did a lot of sin, did a lot of great sins, so we're going to make huge, huge sacrifices. Will that do it? Or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? 
And they go a step further. Will you take my children? How about if I offer my children as sacrifice? I'd like to think that they were thinking of Abraham. Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac. Well, you say, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> God said, I want you to take Isaac and sacrifice him to me. And so he said, okay, let's go. Took Isaac, and he took him up the mountain, and he had Isaac carrying the firewood on his shoulder, and up they go up on Mount Moriah, which will become Mount Zion, which is where the temple was built. All right? And so they're on that mountain when there's long before there's anything there, no city of Jerusalem. He's up on the mountain and he makes an altar of stones and lays his son Isaac on, ties him up, and grabs the knife, and he's ready to go. And God says, stop, stop, I believe you. I believe you would do it. And in his mind, the Bible says what? He already did it. He already did it. In his mind, he said, God wants me to sacrifice Isaac. And if God says you got to do it, then I'm going to do it. And so I already had it done in my mind. And I pulled the knife back, and God said, stop. Is that what they're thinking? Or are they thinking what they usually think? Let's take a baby and sacrifice it like we did to Baal. That's probably what they're thinking. That's what they're used to doing. All right? That's what they're used to doing. And so maybe the way we can get a hold of God is uh, take a baby. Throw them in the fire like we've been doing to Baal. Uh, we'll do that to God. So, does God say, well, okay, I'm with you if you give me your best stock? No. If you give me a thousand sheep? No, that's not God. My firstborn, my child, if I sacrifice him? No, that's not what I want. So you, you tell us that we're doing wrong and we need to straighten out. We need to get rid of this ungrateful uh, off the cuff attitude towards God. We need to straighten ourselves. So tell us how to do it. Tell us how to do it. And that's the only way we can think. Why do they think like that? Because they don't know God. So we come to verse 8. This is a masterpiece of Micah. This is the one when I was a little kid, my mother pulled out of the envelope, said Micah 6 8. <laughs> Can you say it? He has showed the old man what is good. What does the Lord require thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. There it is. That's the masterpiece of Micah. That is what the noise is all about. We've had shouting and this loud noise ringing through the mountains. God said, I got a controversy with you. And you are not responding like you should. You got this I don't care attitude, ungrateful attitude for all that's happened. And finally, there's an answer. He has showed the old man is good. What doth the Lord require of me? You should all be standing up and cheering now. Finally. Finally, somebody's going to tell us what God wants us to do. Finally, we get this answer in the scripture. It's going to not be long and drawn out. It's going to be right to the point. Here's what God wants you to do. Now, there are many authors who just about choke and have apoplexy when they read this verse. 
They say, oh, that's not the way it is. That's not the way it is. We live in the New Testament days. Don't listen to those guys. Get back in the text and go with the flow of argument that's in the text as there's a controversy with God's people because they do not... <coughs> they do not treat God the way they should. They're tired of God. They're tired of God. And so here's the answer. God, what he wants from you and me. Here it is. He has showed the old man what is good. I want you to see he showed you already. We know that Micah has these visions, doesn't he? He's got visions and he sees these pictures in his mind. So a lion running through the mountains. Who's that? A lion of the tribe of Judah. He saw these pictures of a, of a, of a judge being slapped in the face. Who's that? That's Jesus, the Lamb of God, being sacrificed. Right? He, saw, he saw a picture of this little insignificant place. He said, but that's where the king comes from. And he kept seeing these pictures, and he said, now, I've seen a picture. I've seen a picture. God's shown us a picture. What does God require of us? It's a perfect, perfect question. It's one that everybody should have asked already in your lifetime. Matter of fact, yeah, I'll ask yourself quite often, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? What does God require of me? It's the perfect question. In life, we've got lots of questions. We come in with the four basic questions. Number one, where do we come from, right? Number two, who are we? Number three, why are we here? And number four, where are we going? The four main questions of life are those. Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? And who are we? All right. And he said, now, here's what God requires of you. He showed you. You've seen this. He's shown you what is good. And this is what God requires of you. First, to do justly. Or that is to do what is right. Number one, you got to do what's right. You got to do what's right. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> we got to get our lives in order. As Christians, it's got to be our goal to get our lives in order. We've all got to get our lives in order. Uh, we've got to gain control over our tempers. Got to gain control over our bad habits. You got to gain control over your mouth. Maybe the most difficult. Right? You got to gain control. That's a part of getting your life all in order. There are disciplines in life that we are supposed to be getting together. Uh, we should be having devotions of some kind. You need to be praying. You need to be reading that Bible every day. You need to be in church. All right? You need to be in church. It's one of those things. You're going to get your life all in order. Where are you going to be? You're going to be in church when it opens. And you're going to have some regular worship. With the church service, yes, I hope you can do it then. But I hope you do it driving down the road. I hope you do it here, there, or anywhere. Last night, the moon was so bright, I got up, and it was, half a room was light. I went out, and I looked up there, and I saw that moon. And I said, when the evening shade prevail, the moon takes up the wondrous tale. Nightly to the listening earth repeats the story of her birth. Well, all the stars around her burn and all the planets in return. Publish the tidings as they roll. Spread the truth from pole to pole. You worship. You worship God. You need to have those times on your own. Those are the disciplines of a Christian life. You got to get your life in order. Got to take care of the things that need to be done. All right? And we think, well, that's an Old Testament thing. Follow the rules. No, it's not. I want to tell you something very clear. If you're going to have the Holy Spirit filling your life, 
you gotta get your life in order. You want the Holy Spirit? That's the New Testament way. You say, well, we got to, how are we gonna do it? Well, what happens? The Bible says sometimes you quench the Spirit because your attitudes are such that God can't work with you. God can't talk to you even because you got these bad attitudes. He said, you got to get that in together. So what does God require of you? To do justly. Get your life in order. Get things where they need to be. Work on it. Make sure the disciplines of life are helping you. Get control over those things that have control over you. All right? Put it all together. What does God require? Do justly. Get your life together. The next one is love, mercy. Second one is to love mercy. To love mercy. That's a lot deeper than you think. Mercy is what? We're going to give to people. Um, For example, the benefit of the doubt. Mercy gives people the benefit of the doubt. Well, did they intend to do that? Or were they, well, why were they doing that? Give them the benefit of the doubt. All right? I'm saying, I'm sure they didn't mean it. Assign good motives to what people do. That's to love mercy. To love mercy is to assign good Do unto others, right? As you would have others do unto you, that's loving mercy. Offending, offending. There's different types of offense. There is offense that is given and taken. Or somebody does something offensive and we are offended by it. That's not where we want to be. There is an oversensitive way when offense is taken and not given. Oversensitive. All right? I didn't mean to offend you. Well, you did. <laughs> All right, but then there's the correct way uh, offense is given, but not taken. Somebody does something that's hurtful, but I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to be offended by it. That's when you love mercy. You love to give mercy. To say love mercy is all about relationships. It's all about relationships. We're going to help people every way we can, any way we can, because we love mercy. And that's the key to this is, is in your relationship. Do you love to do it? Do you love to do it? Do you love to give them the benefit of the doubt? Do you love to help them? Do you love to support them? Do you love to take whatever they give you and not be offended by it? Do you love to assign people a good motive? Do you love to be, as it says in Corinthians, uh, love is what? Patient. Do you love to be patient? Do you love that? Do you love to be kind? What are those things in 1 Corinthians 13? 1 Corinthians 13 is what we call a love chapter. There's a list of things that you should love to do. 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 4. Charity suffereth long, or that is love is patient. Do you love to be patient? And love is kind. Love envieth not. Love is not vaunted up, not itself, is not puffed up. All right. Does not behave itself unseemingly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. There's one for you. Love thinks no evil. And so our own lives, we got to get in order. We got to do justly. But the lives of the people around us have to be touched by mercy because we love to do it. Because we love to do it. There's what God said. It's what I'm requiring. That's what I want you to do. All right? So your relationships are all touched 
by mercy. Always, always being extra kind, extra patient to people, giving to people something extra. That's what God wants. There's what God wants from you. And then back to Micah 6, 8, uh, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. First is walk with God. There's a direction that God wants you to go. God wants to move you in a direction. He's not having you just wander in circles down here. He's got a direction for you to go in. All right? A lot of you are sitting here tonight because you're going in God's direction. God's thing is what I want you to do. All right? Here's where I want you to go. And you've got to go in God's direction, and you've got to go humbly. Where are we going? We're going home. <laughs> We're going home. We're going to heaven. See? So he says, walk humbly with my God. Where are we going? Well, we're, we're, God says we're going. That's where we're going. We're going home. Going to heaven. All right? So if I'm walking humbly, do I complain about what's in the pathway? I don't think so. Humility follows God without complaining. And there's a lot about that. Say, right? so, oh, I got sick. Yeah, so, yeah, that was part of the trip. Didn't change the destination. Didn't change the destination. So go take it. Obey without question. Walk humbly with God. Right? You're keeping your mouth shut, and God says, we're going this way, and I'm thinking, Really Don't even think it. Don't think it. Obey without question. If God says don't, then don't. Find a way. Make sure you don't. There's plenty of things if you want to look on the list of things. God's got a whole list of them. Uh, sometimes we look at the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. God said don't. God said, don't. Don't do that. Then don't do it. If you're walking humbly with God, all right, keep regular conversation with God. Right? You're going to talk to him like he's leading you. So you want to know what to do. Everybody wants to know. What is God asking of us? What is God requiring of us? There it is. Step one. Get your act together. Straighten your life out. Get control over the things that need to be controlled. Number two, love people. Pour out mercy on other people. That's what Jesus did everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, he's pouring mercy on people, right? Blind people can see. Deaf people can hear. Lame people can walk. Dead people can live. I mean, everywhere he goes, he's pouring out mercy. Hungry people can eat. How many? 5,000 at a crack? That was just the men. It's more like 10,000 he fed with women and children. Just staggering things. Everywhere he goes, he's pouring out mercy, pouring out mercy until finally nailing to the cross as they're nailing him in. Most agonizing thing because he was the only one there that refused the painkillers, all right? The other guys took the painkillers, I'm sure. He refused the painkillers, and so they're nailing him to the cross, and what's coming out of his mouth? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just mercy comes pouring out of him everywhere you look. That's what they want from you. God wants that from you, a flowing out of mercy. And then to walk with God. We're going to go in a direction, put our hand in his hand, and let's go with him, and let's not argue with him, and let's not complain about the pathway. Keep a regular conversation and go. That's how you do it. That's how you'll be spirit-filled. That's how you'll have power as a Christian, to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. Somebody finally asked the right question and gave us a beautiful answer. What is God asking you to do? That's what he wants you to do. It's not so hard. You think? Yeah, it might be harder than you think. Okay.
But worth it. Talk about worth it. Oh, my goodness. Well, I got to stop because I could talk about this verse for hours. This is a magnificent piece of scripture. But I got to go on. Verse 9. You thought I was going to end, didn't you? <laughs> the Lord's voice crieth to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? God's voice is calling out, and there's a man of wisdom. And the man of wisdom. It's, I love the way he does this because he's always mixing our senses up. He says, you see the name. He says, and then you hear the rod. What's a rod for? Give you a spanking, give you a whipping, straighten you out. You hear the rod. You can hear it coming. And you sense that God is there. And there's a wise man who does what? He sees God in the situations of life. Okay? And so when he's thinking about life, he's always thinking about, well, where's God involved in this? What's God doing? How does God plan to work this out. And you can rest assured God is unfolding events and providing opportunities for us and safety for us all along the way. And if you listen for correction, learn to listen for correction, he says. That says you hear the rod, you hear it when it's coming. Uh, you'll learn to see God's hand in everything. And so when you look at life, you don't say, ah, I don't know what God's got to do with it. God's got everything to do with everything. You're sitting there because God's got something to do with it. You're sitting here tonight because God's got something to do with it. And God has brought you, and, and when I come here, I'm staggered because I look at the people whose lives have been woven together like a beautiful tapestry. Their lives are all woven together into one thing called the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm just, I think of what God had planned all along the way. And when I started here 30 years ago, um, I never dreamed it would be like this. Never dreamed, never crossed my mind. God knew all along, see? I knew all along. So I always look at it like I'm trying to see what God's doing. I'm trying to notice his handiwork as he, and I'm listening for that rod. Just come, whoosh, I want to hear that. Make sure I hear that. I'm listening for those things and I'm hearing those things and I want to make sure that God is there. And I always think, when I think about it, I think I'm just trying to not mess it up. I'm trying to. Trying not to mess up what he's doing. Trying to stay out of his way and make sure if he wants, you know. And my goodness, look what he's doing. Verse 10. Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with wicked balances and with a bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence. Inhabitants thereof have spoken lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. There is a common nature among people is that they have a lot of problem when it comes to deceit. And when it comes to telling lies, they got a lot of problem with that. He says, I keep hearing that. You've got a scale and you've got your finger on the one side all the time. You're always trying to pull something off. You don't deal truthfully, and if you're ever going to do justly, you're going to have to deal truthfully with God. And that's the controversy he has with them. Verse 13, therefore also I will make thee sick in smiting thee, making thee desolate because of thy sins. Here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to make your life frustrating. Because you won't stop 
sinning. So here's what I'm going to do, verse 14. Thou shalt eat and not be satisfied. Thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee. Thou shalt take hold but not deliver. Or in other words, you think you got it in your hand, you got it figured out, but you can't accomplish it. So that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Or do you think, oh, I got it, no, I got it. And then an enemy comes with the sword and takes it away. You shall sow, but you shall not reap. You shall tread the olives, you shall not anoint thee with oil. The sweet wine, thou shalt not drink wine. So it's what we call diminishing returns. You try to accomplish, and it just fails, and it fails, and it fails, and it fails. Diminishing returns. So we plant seed, we tread on the olives, we squeeze the grapes, and there's nothing. We got nothing. We got nothing for all our work. Why? Because you left God out. And so he's going to leave it that way. If, you were, if we had time, we'd turn over uh, to the book of Haggai. He was a prophet. And he said, you put your money in a bag with a hole in the bottom. You think you're accomplishing, and you're not. And you go to sow, and there's nothing there. And when you go to reap, there's nothing there. Diminishing returns. And Haggai said, it's because you built your house and you left mine desolate. You built your own house, took care of your own business. You didn't take care of God's business. It is our job to take care of God's business, his job to take care of ours. When I had to mow the lawn here, which I didn't mind doing, had mowed at home. I always mowed this one first. Always. As I thought, I don't think it's right if I do it the other way. And sometimes I didn't get to mine. But this one had to be first because of that very verse, that very thing. It's going to be diminishing returns if you don't take care of my business. Always remember, God will take care of your business if you take care of his. And then the last verse, for the statutes of Omri are kept, all the works of the house of Ahab, you walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation, the inhabitants thereof a hissing, therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. Omri was one of the kings of Israel that said, we're going to make Baal worship a big deal. And at that particular time, the people said, hey, we're with you. Let's, we're all going to join in. We're going to have a worship kind of service where we can kind of do something very sensual. And so they filled the place with prostitutes. And that was their worship. And his son was Ahab, was one of the darkest men in the history of Israel, married a queen Jezebel. Okay. And they had 400 prophets of Baal that they fed at a glorious table every day as they celebrated the luxury of Baal worship. And it all just kept going until who came along? Elijah challenged all 400 of them, 400 to one, and God won. What did they do? They danced all day. They cut themselves with knives to feel pain. They jumped and hooted and hollered. And Elijah hollered over, hey, maybe he's gone hunting. Keep yelling. <laughs> and finally, they couldn't bring fire down from heaven. And Elijah said, pour water on it. They poured water on it. Pour some more on it. Pour some more on it. Let's put more water on it. Now the ditch around it is full of water. And then God says, okay. And he burned up the stones. I don't know how hot a fire has got to be to burn up a stone. Happens way down in the middle of the earth somewhere. It burned up the stones. It was so hot because God was real. And what they're doing, they rather have a God makes me feel good, lets me do what I feel like doing. That's what they'd rather have. They walk in the statutes of Omri, or let's just have a good time. It's okay. We'll celebrate and have luxury, 
and we'll gather lots of followers and everybody will join in. And God said, back in verse 3, wherein have I wearied you? How'd you get tired of me? What was it that made you tired of me? What a great chapter. I got to stop because my time is up. Next week we'll go on. Thank you.